David Hodge is an artist who takes creative inspiration for his work from his life. He spent 25 years as the Queen of Soho. Legendary drag artist Dusty O has hosted many iconic London club nights, DJed all over the world and been a star on the West End stage and screen. You name it, he did it in a huge wig and couture designer outfit. Here David talks about each decade of his extraordinary life, the highs and the lows. This is David Hodge, the boy who sat by the window. Hello, David. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm all right. Good man. Okay, so we finished the last episode at the end of the 2010s and it was all looking fabulous. was looking a bit bit more up, wasn't it? It was lovely. Slightly was different. Less wigs and makeup. Much less makeup. <laughs> there was love in the air. There was. Which was great. And you'd suddenly become an artist. Yes. Bizarre. Unfortunately, though, at the beginning of 2020, as for everybody, lockdown. Yes. Yeah. Well. Which, it- unfortunately, we're still not out of lockdown. We're not. So no. it's affected everybody's life. And it's affected everything that people can do within their lives. It's still affecting my life massively because obviously I, I still work for the salon that I talked about in the previous episode um, part time and love that job, you know. And what is it you love about it? I just love the gregariousness. I love the staff. I love the gossip. I love the, having lovely hair every day. With You can just walk in and say, can you blow dry my hair? Can you do my nails? Can you do, you know, <laughs> and it. After the uncertainty of all those years of working in Clubland and is the job safe, is the job safe, this is steady. It's my reg- It's a regular thing for me. It's not about the money. It's about what it gives me emotionally and I'm working with lovely people and, you know, my boss is my best friend. So everything's great. You know, I love, I love it. But, and I really care about that business as well. Um, it's been five years since I've worked there now and I, got sort of a lot of emotional input <laughs> and with lockdown we've just had to t- had to um put five of our staff on self-isolation well obviously if you lose five stylists you lose a huge chunk of business and things are difficult enough without you know so yeah it's still really affecting us and it could still damage us but i know that we're going to be able to see it through we'll get there slowly but surely you have to you're still an artist? Yeah, still doing all my art. Lockdown gave me so much opportunity in, in that respect. The first lockdown, which was three, was it three or four months, three months, I learned how to do a different sort of art. I wanted to learn how to do digital art because I was just curious, really. I wanted to, you know, different effects and things. So I did um, a little course, online course, and Mark helped me as well because he knows all about all that sort of stuff. I started doing prints of just things that I doodled really on the iPad and with the, the new knowledge that I, I got that, well, if it's uh, 
if it's good enough for some of those big artists who are doing it now, then it's good enough for me. So I gave it a go. And I spent that first three months really doing that. And that was incredible because not only did it help financially, it also meant that I could put my work out quite cheaply so that lots of the people who I was still friends with on social media from the dusty O days could, you know, spend 50 quid and get a nice picture as opposed to having to spend 500 quid on a great big canvas with oils and blah, blah, blah that had taken me three weeks to do. It really was an interesting time because it meant I could produce lots of stuff. My, my idea was I would produce one picture a day right the way through lockdown. And I think I ended up doing three a day. Wow. <laughs> so you set yourself a goal. Yeah. So I thought, let's just see where we go. I, I didn't actually set myself a goal. I, what I said was, let's just see where this goes. And um, like, because in my art story, things tend to do what they want to do and not what I plan them to do. And I don't make plans anymore in that respect. So that was really interesting. And it was a, a fantastic little journey and it gave me a new skill. You know, I now know how to do it. Someone said to me actually yesterday, I put um, a picture on Instagram. It was just a doodle. And this one guy, I don't know who he was, but he really liked it. He wrote some nice comments and he tagged in one of his friends and his friend said, oh, anyone can do that. And you do hear that a lot with digital art. You know, anyone could do that. But it's not really about that, is it? It's about actually doing it. Correct. <laughs> yes, of course, anybody can do anything. Yeah. But if they, you know... I could be a brain surgeon if I was trained to be a brain surgeon. Exactly. But I'm not. No. So. And you have no interest. <laughs> no. I would hope. Although, so. to be fair, it seems that whichever career you've chosen, you seem to have done very well at it. So actually... Let's not rule it out at this stage. <laughs> I think I'm a bit, I don't like blood. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's so people have still got sort of very diverging opinions on my work, I think. As in the drag days, they either love it or they hate it, but that's fine. Social media tends to bring out the worst in people, oh, I people think. People are foul and spiteful on social media. I mean, I had a bait of this one person starting new accounts on Instagram just so that he could send me a vile message because I would constantly block it. And I thought, and I know who it was anyway, it was someone from Donkey's years ago who I hadn't thought about for Donkey's years either. I thought, how could you be bothered to keep setting up a new account just to say I've got a crooked nose? You know, <laughs> and that's how infantile it is. And remember when we were talking about how people will accept change of, you know, address, change of gender, change, you name it. Um, but they won't accept a change of personality or opinion. It's like, I'm so over that. You get over it as well, mate. <laughs> Social media gives them the, the access to you, doesn't it? It gives you the access and also they can hide. Yeah, because they would they hide. say it if they met you in of the street? Of course not. And they wouldn't say it under their own accounts either. That's why. They were setting up, you know, oh, so all I do now is I just, if if you get a message and it, it's from an account with no posts, no followers, and I'm following one person and that's me, I don't usually accept it. <laughs> and that's the power, isn't it? Yeah. You, can, you can also the, choose whether to... The block button is available to us all. Exactly. And I think that's how... Most people should be. I yeah. find it really upsetting that people can get upset by comments made on social media. And I do think something more needs to be done. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, 
It's difficult though, isn't it? Because when you start policing anything, it's when to stop. It is, but when you think about how Donald Trump was stopped. Yeah. And needed. And needed to be. (laughs) Yeah. You can look at freedom of speech, but then you look at somebody as dangerous as him. Or you look at some situations such as Hong Kong, you know, where they're now blocking all social media because of dissent. It's it's a very dodgy area, it grey is very, area. Well, it's a form it? of control, isn't of it? Of course, yeah. And so everything is a form of control, though, isn't it? There's um, always someone, and you know, if you're if you stack shelves in Sainsbury's, the head shelf stacker has got some control over you. You know, we're all we're all victims of it, unfortunately. We are, but it's very. I find it terrible when the Wi-Fi goes off i don't know about you don't you suddenly (laughs) you suddenly think the world's ended what what and you think how how long is it going to be and i can't carry on i need to find out what my neighbor has had for dinner yeah i want to know how they do their eggs and so isn't it terrible that you think that whoever controls that could just switch it all off yeah and we'd all be left just wandering around looking at each other thinking what so we're in 2021 now so it's the start of this decade for you. Well, everything's been on hold, hasn't it, for the first sort of year, the last year. Couldn't really plan that much and we still can't, not sure what's going to happen, you know, how how things are going to progress. But I I used the second lockdown to write my book, <laughs> um, which people had often said to me, oh, you know, you've got a book, but I think we in you, you know, we've all got a book in us though. You know, my story is not, it's got its own detail, but I think a lot of people will equate to it because it's it's just a very human story, really. And um, with a little sprinkle of showbiz, oh, lots of you know, but that, that that's just the ingredients, isn't it? And, mm. and each person will have a different ingredients that will be equally palatable. I'm not saying it's my story is any more interesting or fabulous or more wonderful than anyone else's, but it's my story and people had encouraged me to put it down on paper. So I did and I used that second lockdown to get that done and my God, it was the most hard experience I've ever done. Anything I've ever done and I really didn't enjoy it at all. People go, oh, it must be so therapeutic writing a book. No, it's not. It takes ages and ages and ages. You have to do it about 10 or 15 times. How did you actually physically start what was the starting point for the you? The starting point was Mark showing me how to, use, how to use the pages thing on the laptop. And I said, I'm going to have to start this. And various people had encouraged me to do it. You know, and, and say, so oh, people would love this story. They'd love it. It's funny. It's sad. It's this. It's that. It's got drugs. It's got pop stars. It's got sex. It's got prostitution. It's got nightclubs. You name it. So um, I thought, well, I've got nothing better to do for the next four months, have I? My my solo exhibition had been cancelled and I'd done all the work for it anyway and it's still sitting there in my bedroom waiting to go up, but more about that later. Um, So I wrote the book and I sent it to a couple of people just for their opinion. And uh, one of the guys who I sent it to, a good friend of mine who used to own Heaven Nightclub, Paul Savory, he recommended me to send it to a friend of his who worked for Penguin Books for a long, long time. He was very high up at Penguin, I think marketing. So I sent it to him and he explained to me that he was a literary agent now. And he'd only got four or five authors on his books. 
but obviously because of his previous work, he was very well connected and obviously knew his stuff. Made lots of suggestions to me about the actual book and to rewrite it in a certain way and blah, blah, blah. And we went through it chapter after chapter after chapter. And he kind of uh, took me on, <laughs> so to speak, but without taking me on. So then I asked him eventually, I said, look, are you going to be my agent with this project or not? And he said, yeah, I'd love to be. His name's David Parrish. He's a lovely, lovely man. Another David Another in your life. Another David. There's been so many formative Davids. <laughs> including me, but I'm not so formative. So David Parrish took me on and it's finished. It's edited. It's exactly as it is going to be. I'm not doing any more work to it. It's got dirt. It's got sex. It's got drugs, rock and roll, nightclubs, transvestitism, drag, you name it. It's got it in it. We've had two rejections so far, but there's a couple of publishing houses that are very interested and uh, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. So at least I did something productive with that second lockdown, even though I didn't really enjoy it very much. I knew what happened, you know, it was like, <laughs> and it's hard work writing books. People don't realise, oh my God, it's so boring as well sitting there, rehashing everything, rethinking everything. It, it is therapeutic in the sense that you see things from a different perspective again, you can re relive things and think oh I wouldn't do that now but I spent three quarters of my book thinking I wouldn't do that now anyway so you know <laughs> and did you speak to family members about it um a little bit not too much I haven't got a huge family I've only got my mum and my sister really and my sister's very very supportive and she just said oh just tell the truth and that's exactly what I did my mum <laughs> she wouldn't read it to be honest anyway cause she, she can't see very well anymore but um you'll have to do the audio book <laughs> she wouldn't bother listening to it unless it's emmerdale she's not interested or gossip about the neighbor but she's fine i've told her all about it and she was oh my son what are you doing that for <laughs> and she did suggest the other day when i was when i was uh, talking about the writing and everything and she said, oh, you want to get a proper job? I said, you've said that to me before many, many times. She said, you always liked animals. Why didn't you, why don't you apply for a job at London Zoo? It's only down the road from you. And I was like, well, I'm 55. I don't think they're probably looking for someone like me. But she's, And she went, oh, yeah. And like in her head, I'm still 12. Yes, of course you, you are. Know, so. She's hoping one day you will get a proper, a proper job. job. Yeah. yeah. Never. So the book <laughs> will come out eventually because I've absolutely no doubt yeah, that uh, that will happen. And it's called The Boy Who Sat By The Window, the of same course. name as this podcast. Yes. Um, and you asked your good friend George to write the theme song. I did. And, and he did. <laughs> he agreed, which was lovely. George is in his 60th year, isn't he? So he's been he writing is, a lot yeah. of songs this year. Yeah. Well, we were chatting during lockdown and he said, oh, what are you doing? I said, I'm, oh, I'm trying to write a book. What's it called? And I said, the boy who sat by the window, because that dates from a specific incident in at my childhood. And he was really curious. And I said, oh, I'll send you the book. I need to send it you anyway, because I want your permission, because you're in it quite a lot. And George is very blasé about things like that. He says, oh, you don't have to send it me. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. I'm not going to sue you. I'm not going to, you know. I said, well, it's only the truth anyway. He said, well, that's fine. He said, I don't care. But I sent it to him. And he got quite interested in the idea of the boy who sat by the window. And wrote this beautiful, beautiful song, which I was hugely flattered by. And it was about that incident, really, and about me as a child 
I think there's elements of him in it as well, but of course there is. He wrote it, you know, it's his. So, yeah, that's the boy who sat by the window. <laughs> and if you could speak to him now, what would you say to that boy Who's in school <laughs> who was forced to sit by the window? I would say nothing will be as you expect it to be. You'll have lots of laughs, lots of tears, lots of ups, lots of downs. You'll get in all sorts of trouble. Life is a surprise. You always want surprises and you're going to be getting them. And I would also say that I still sit by the window because that's where I do sit at, my, at the salon. I sit by the window. So 55 years later, I'm still sitting by the window, but I'm a lot happier sitting by it these days than I used to be. And when you look at drag these days, what are your thoughts? Drag's very different these days to when I was doing it. When I was doing it, I think in the way we did it then in sort of 90s and further on, it was very much more of a political statement than it is now because not so many people were doing it. It wasn't as open as it is now. Obviously, things like RuPaul's Drag Race has made it very accessible and... I stopped wanting to do drag when 13-year-old schoolgirls started watching and <laughs> wanting, you know, trying to add me on Facebook because that's not what I ever viewed drag as. To me, drag was subversive. It was like a political statement. It was, it was a sexual statement. And it seems now that that's all been whitewashed or some parts of it have been whitewashed over and that, you know, you've got, drag telling kids nursery school nursery rhymes in libraries and it's very safe now you know it's very formulaic they tend to look quite similar um in my opinion anyway with those lines drawn down the nose and a dot on the end so i don't know it's just not my thing anymore you know i'm an old dinosaur i'm the first to admit it and i'm commenting here about something that i don't watch i don't watch drag on tv i have no interest in it on social media People are always asking my opinion. Oh, what's this? What's that? What do you think about that? And I don't, most of the time, I don't know what they're talking about because I've moved away from it. To me, it just seems like reality TV now. And Is it just a form of entertainment then? A form of entertainment. It's clowns. It's lady clowns. It's still, you're still viewing it as, as clowns. Because I think, that's I th sort I think of how that's, you thought of yourself. Yeah, it is. It is how I thought of myself and I hated it. I see it, you know, over and over. They're, some of them are clever clowns, <laughs> but it is a form of clowning because that not in what they're doing. What they're doing is, is brave, it's different, but it's viewed as clowns by other people. I'm not calling them clowns. I'm saying they're viewed as clowns. When you became Dusty O, did you see that as because obviously it's this you it was still David yeah of course it was was Dusty O the real you and allowing you to be the real you no no I think when people say oh this is the authentic me my answer would be no the authentic you is when you take it all off and when you be yourself you know when you when you're not clicking your fingers and doing death drops and repeating other people's catchphrases. <laughs> That's not the authentic you. It's a chance for you to express sides of yourself that you maybe wouldn't, the feminine sides, the drag sides, cross-dressing, transvestites, whatever, and entertain. 
But is that authentically you? I think the authentic you is the person who is just quiet at home with their thoughts. The real person, not the bravado, brave, in-your-face, screaming, colourful, created drag queen. How can that be authentic? Because it took three hours to do, you know. So, in a way, it is authentic because it's a side of you. But I don't, for me personally, and that's the only person I can talk for, for me, it wasn't the authentic me. No. It was, um, it was an antidote to the authentic me. It was the, the me that I would quite like to have been or the life that I would have quite liked to have had. And I achieved it, you know, but it wasn't the authentic me. It's we're all different though, aren't we? We're different people. We're different as a child, as a parent, as a friend, as a family member. You show different sides, don't course, you, to different people? to different people. And that's why I always say I am only speaking for me. I am not, uh, you know, I'm not a spokesperson for the gay community. I'm not a spokesperson for the drag community or the trans community or for any drag queen on RuPaul's Drag Race. I am only speaking for myself because for every single person, circumstances, situations are going to be completely different. You're going to have a completely different mo outlook on life, completely different motives. So I can only speak for myself. I'm sure that other people would have very, very different opinions. And that's absolutely fantastic because different opinions is the thing that keeps us all going. It keeps us fresh. Well, there's that very famous saying, isn't there, as well, that someone will always be prettier, someone will always be smarter, someone will always be younger, but they will never be you. No. And well, I've got a gun. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that applies to you because you've got your own story. We all have our own story, though. And, and sometimes someone said to me, well, what makes your story different? Is said, And I, my answer was, well, it's different because it's my story. And exactly the same way that if you wrote it, it would be totally different and amazing because it's your story. It's not more important. It's just mine. Okay, so as we look forward to the rest of this decade, I mean, we've got another nine years to go. <laughs> Where do you see yourself at the end of this decade? I don't make plans anymore. I used to always plan and plot and try and strive for things and manipulate situations for my betterment. I don't do that now. I tend to just concentrate on one thing at a time and do it as well as I can, whether that's a picture painting a picture or a book or a day at the salon and I put everything I have into whatever I do and do it bit by bit and let fate sort the rest out. I'm very lucky in that it's always worked like that for me so far and I'm just hopeful that it will continue. Just signed with a, a gallery called the Brunswick Gallery which is only about three or four minutes from where I live actually which is another weird coincidence. It's owned by a guy called John Themis, who incidentally was Boy George's musical director for many years. So it's all kind of linked. Everything I do is, has always been linked in certain threads ways. Threads come yeah. together. And um, so it will be the first, my first London gallery to exhibit my work on a, you know, a prolonged basis, not just an exhibition, then close. It's a commercial gallery, so they'll, they'll be work up there all the time. And they're having 10, 10 originals and 10 of my prints. So it's a nice sort of showcase for, for what I do. But there's no plans. If, if they don't sell any, they don't sell any. 
If they sell them, great. You know, whatever. It is what it is. I don't make those plans anyway. As long as I've got just enough to to live the way I want to live. And that's not about, you know, having all the, the latest Yoji Yamamoto clothes or going on posh holidays or staying in posh hotels, five-star hotels, which my life used to be a lot like that. It's not that anymore. It's about having freedom. Free, and when I say freedom, I suppose I was always very free, but I was chained to Dusty O. You know, now I can do exactly what I want when I want, pretty much. My part-time job pays my rent and my bits and bobs and the painting is the extra. So I've got a very, I've got a secure, my life is much more secure than it used to be. It's more rounded. It's more wholesome. It's more, it's got more components. It's got my husband and I'm not just thinking about putting on a wig and going and getting drunk and taking coke in some place, you know, some club. It's about, it's about real life now. And I try not to plan too much, as I say. I just let things be. It's, it's really important to live in the moment. And I am so thankful of the moment as well. I mean, you probably know this. I, I don't see as anything that I've ever done has really been an achievement. I just see it as something that has happened. Um, and sort of it's only now, after moving into completely different areas of life and, and, and emotions and, you know, trying new things, that I can actually find some solace in just being and not striving to be someone else or look like someone else or to, you know, it's a lot of hard work mentally doing what I did <laughs> as a lifestyle. It's a lot of hard work and it carries a lot of baggage. And um, like anything, it takes a while for you to shed it. And how did you sort out your drug and drink problems in the end? Well, the drink problems sort of start when I was taken out of that out of those circumstances. I did a couple of times revert a little bit. Mark, I'd go out and get really drunk and incoherent. But I found that what I'd been doing was binge drinking, basically, to get me through the night. And when I wasn't in that environment, I wasn't requiring the alcohol to get me through it. So it sorted itself out. There was a couple of incidents. I once I went on a works party once and I got I got carried away and really, really drunk. And then the next day my boss said to me, You don't have to be that person anymore, you know. And I was like, mm, and I was so embarrassed about it. I haven't had a, an alcoholic drink for nearly three years now. So, and I don't intend to, I don't want one. So did you feel the pressure that night to be the, yeah. the entertainer? Yes, it was like, it was like the old, there was a big group of us and we were in out and about in Soho and obviously I know a lot of the bar owners and things. So we would be going into places and oh, I have a bottle of champagne. It's so lovely to see you. I haven't seen you for two years, you know, five years or whatever. And, um, yeah, I kind of reverted to type a little bit and made a bit of a show of myself. But, you know, we live and learn. But when you look back over this last five decades, what strikes me as somebody listening to you is it doesn't seem to matter what happened in your life or, or what your roads you took. 
you always had such a positive attitude about whatever, you know, was in front of you and whatever you confronted. And so where, where does that positivity come from? I think that comes from my father, really. My dad was, even though he had so many things stacked against him in life, was incredibly funny, incredibly jolly. Um, and he was really good at putting on a show, putting on a face. I've always been, I think I inherited that from him. I can do that. And if you feel crap about your situation, then there's only one thing to do, isn't there? And that's change it and live in hope that you can change it. And I've, I think I've always had that hope and I've still got that hope and I've still got that drive to do things. You know, I'm 55 now and I feel in my head I'm, I'm like 22 because I've just started a new life, really. Five years ago, I started a new existence. So at 50, I, everything changed for me. Everything. Got married, career change, everything changed in my head as well, really. And um, so, yeah, I've got a lot of catching up to do. And I'm quite keen to do that. You know, and so far, so good. There's been interesting things still happening for me you know this is an interesting thing. who'd have thought that i'd have been my opinion would have mattered that anyone would have wanted to have listened no i didn't really think that but you know there's still nice things going on and i intend to milk them for as much as well because i want a happy funny fun prosperous life like everybody like we all do if you if you don't milk what you've got if you don't play the cards that you've been given you're a fool okay george each week i've created a soundtrack for a decade this week it's the 2020s however i haven't chosen any specific songs because i know that you've been working on a project 60 songs for 60 years i wanted to hear what you've got to say about that because that's such a powerful and strong thing to do to release a song for every year of your life and to have put that together in such a short time it's an amazing achievement so tell us a little bit about that well it's something that's ongoing and it might end up being more than 60 songs because you know i've had some funny comments from people saying oh it's a lot and i'm like well no if i was a fashion designer and i did 50 outfits you wouldn't go Oh, she's overdoing it. It's just it's weird. <laughs> what I think is, is weird about the music business is, and what I've discovered, is that you get a lot of no's. No, this isn't, you can't do this, you can't do that. And you think, hold on a second, I didn't start doing this to be told what to do. Yeah, yeah. And I think to a certain extent, when you become famous, I'm, I'll, I'll get to the songs in a minute, when you become famous, fame becomes a, another job. It's a separate job to being in a band and to writing songs and all of that you've now got this extra position that you've got to sort of take care of. And sometimes it can drag you so far away from what you're actually doing. And you start thinking, oh, this is the fun bit, being famous, going yeah. to parties. <laughs> and, you know, well, you can, <laughs> I don't need to tell people what of a distraction that became for me. Yeah. I think in the last 10 years, you know, I'm 13 years sober now. So I've had the opportunity to kind of grow back into myself. And I suppose in a way, Doing these songs is my way of sort of making up for all the times I didn't make records. There were a lot of yeah, years where I just didn't yeah. make albums, a lot of years when I was doing other things. And I was having a great time when I was DJing. You know, I had a fantastic sort of long period as a DJ, and so did you. 
it was a really great fun thing to do. But now I've come back to music and also, you know, I've been making all my own videos. I've been sort of making content and trying to sort of defy this concept that people can't listen to anything more than 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. This is learned <laughs> behavior. This is like an amendment. An amendment is an amendment because it can be re-amended. So this idea, oh, I can't listen to a whole album. I can't listen to a whole song. I'm sorry. If you can't, then don't listen to it because I'm not making, of course I want my music to be liked, but I'm not particularly bothered about what other people think because what difference does it make? I'm not yeah, going to change yeah. it. It's a weird thing, isn't it? We'll say, yeah. oh, I don't like your hair. And you go, well, okay, well, <laughs> I like it. You know, it's <laughs> a funny <laughs> thing about creativity and defiance. So for me, doing this, I mean, obviously I'm not putting a time on it and I'm doing, I want to make visual content for everything. And I'm using my art, I'm using poetry. I'm going to do some, I'm just doing a lot of random things. And not saying, like, for example, I put two videos out. Those songs aren't out and no one knows about them. It's doing everything back to front, like, just because I've realised that the old way doesn't work. Yeah. Get a plug out. That doesn't work. So, you know, this morning I got a message from a friend of mine to say, oh, I love Swoon, right, randomly. And I'm like, I remember the first time I heard Sly and the Family Stone was in my friend Rhonda's bedroom in Warsaw. And it blew my mind. So, you know, it's this idea that you have to hear something on the radio to give it validation or it has to sell some of the greatest things, polystyrene, the sex pistols. There's so many great things that we still talk about. And they're not, it's not because, because in a way, if a lot of people like something, that means it's not very good. Usually, yeah, it's true. It's true. If it, comes from, <laughs> if it comes from the mainstream, it tends to be mainstream. And that is and what you know, it is. You think about it? the 70s, a lot of the stuff that happened in the 70s, all the stuff we've been talking about, it was in the mainstream. But people, I think the industry interferes too much now. Yeah. You know, you've, got, you've got people saying, giving you advice. People have never made a record, never written mm. a song, never ever tried to write a lyric. Like, Well, people who look you... terrible telling you how to dress and think, well, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't put that on if I was you. And so, well, no, you wouldn't be able to fit in it, darling. I have fantastic, <laughs> listen, my own manager is super commercial and we have fantastic conversations. And in fact, the only time we really rouse about creativity. And I say to him all the time, okay, it's a bit like me saying, don't answer the phone because you, you haven't got another deal in you, right? I say this to my oldest audience. Well, that's a ridiculous comparison. I say, no, it's not. <laughs> I have been doing this for over 30 odd years. I must have learned something, surely. Of I mean, <laughs> and I think so. <laughs> so I have to kind of, it's all, sometimes it's almost like you have to find a balance between what you want to do creatively. And also, I've got a really, I've got a pop sensibility. I can't, I don't write in self-indulgent music. I write stuff that I want heard. I'm yeah. not pretending that when I paint something, I don't want to sell it. Yeah. That's just a load of crap. It's like, no, I want to sell it all. That's all I no, have. that's the same as me. You know, because, it's exactly you know, it's the same. Like, because it's like, if somebody likes it, I'm an entertainer. So, you know, I want a response. When, when somebody says, oh, I don't like it, that's okay as well. But it's not quite as good. It's not quite as good, but I just think you're <laughs> totally wrong, you know, and, and sometimes things are about, you know, how you, where, where you see them, how you see them, what mood you're in, you know, all that sort of stuff. I think it's all important. And I think if you like something, it doesn't matter whether you've seen it before, whether it's like something else, because it will always, 
you know, I always say it always has a bit of you in it. And if you can tell there's a bit of you in it. Yeah, yeah. Even if it is because, as I say, you know, nothing is, there's, everything's been done. But so what? doesn't mean you shouldn't do it again. I always say it. about um, when people say about using digital art, because I've just started using digital art as part of my process and everything. And people are going, well, really, it's cheating. And my answer is usually if Picasso had had an iPad, do you really think he wouldn't have used it? <laughs> well, no, but if you look at, like, for example, I was reading this thing recently, which, um, you know, was showing how he used these kind of African masks to create pictures. And I love Picasso. It's one of my favourites. So to me, I love the whole massive noses. And yeah, pictures. yeah. I don't want to create things that already exist. I want, the, you know, I want to distort things. Sure. And so I'm always actually looking for simplistic ways to do what I do. The more simple it is and the more almost childlike, the more I tend to kind of really enjoy doing it. And then, you know, the process, I do all this beading and, you know, sewing and throwing paint and I'm probably going to get a massive bill from this house when I leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, Picasso said it took him, it was him who said it took him 10 years to learn to paint. Longer, like I think 30 master. years to paint like a child. Yeah, and 30 years to paint like a child. Well, I think what he's talking about is that kind of, and it's. I think the same thing applies to music and the same thing applies to doing a podcast or anything creative. If you can kind of sort of find that and, you know, that feeling that you have when you were 17 yeah, and anything yeah. was possible. And I think yeah, people yeah. are still, you know, because... People you know, will be drawn to that, won't they? They'll, they'll feel that energy and they'll and, feel you know, like... I always laugh at, like, food critics or art critics or critics, music critics, I'm like... How do you get to be a food critic? I want to be one. <laughs> I can eat all, all right. <laughs> on that note, we look forward to hearing the 60 tracks, the rest of them. I've heard a couple and they're fantastic. And I'm very proud that um, the song that you've written for this series is going to be included in them. So thanks for that, George. Yes, the boy who sat by the window. This podcast was produced and edited by Jackie O'Malley. Post-production is by Carl Svensson at Tadar Media Limited. Music by George O'Dowd and Luke Begley. Produced by Kevin Frost. Original artwork by David Hodge. Podcast artwork design by Lee Dyer. This has been David Hodge, the boy who sat by the window. The boy who sat by the window With colourful thoughts flying through his head the sum of the story but it's not over yet